friends. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I'm Carrie Elleveld. I am here with our Marcos Melissas today because he is out on vacation, hopefully a nice digital detox. And instead, instead, we have a fantastic guest, uh, Tim Miller, who is a former Republican. What are your ideas now, Tim? Oh, boy. Uh, I guess the short answer is independent, but I've only voted for Democrats since 2015. So you can you tell me what I am. Well, that's not bad. I mean, you know, 2015 is a, a pretty decent conversion rate. Are you yeah. saying I, I don't mean to get too deep into your personal? No, let's do it. No, let's uh, do it. But did you did you vote for Hillary Clinton then? I voted for Hillary Clinton. Uh, I was on the fence, and um, I can't. I wish I would have written it down, but something happened. I was on the fence between not for Trump between Hillary and you know whatever uh, Evan McMullen or whatever, and something happened the last week that's one of the Trump people said something that pissed me off so much. And I was voting in DC, so it didn't matter. I'm just like, fuck you guys. I can't, I can't do this. I'm going to vote for Hillary. And I, I was not a Hillary fan as we can, as we get into, right, right. Um, but this is all, it's all kind of surreal. I'm here on the daily coast podcast. You know, if you would have told me this uh, eight years ago, um, I've been like, wow, it's been a, it's been an interesting decade, but um, yeah, I did. I did. Uh, I did vote for Hillary. And by the way, I ended up voting for Hillary quite happily um, uh, cause she was obviously the better choice. And uh, so yeah, I'm Hillary. And then I was in California, I just moved and I've, I voted for Gavin Newsom like a hundred times. And I don't really love Gavin Newsom in any particular way, but uh, he's been the best of the options presented by right. a substantial margin. Right. And uh, now I'm here in Louisiana, and I, I don't expect my my streak to to reverse anytime soon. But we'll okay, we'll see. okay. Well, glad to have you in Louisiana. Uh, so, um, and we were glad to have you in California as as well. Um, so, as as our guests, I mean, our, as our listeners have probably figured out by now, uh, Tim is a former Republican, uh, kind of a never Trumper, and um, I actually knew Tim back in D.C. We met uh, mostly because I interviewed him for a, a piece I did about gay Republicans, and um, you know how they felt about their party, etc. Um, Tim now is with the Bulwark. Um, you and some of our listeners have heard us interview Sarah Longwell, who's uh, who has the um, Focus Group podcast. Tim writes and edits the and hosts the uh, Next Level podcasts at the Bulwark, um, and he also has a a book out, which is not totally new, but it's newish. It's like within the last year, isn't that right, Tim? Yeah, about a year ago, exactly now. Yeah. And it's called Why We Did It. And it is a an extremely introspective look at the Republican Party, his role in the Republican Party. His, you know, it's like a personal it's like kind of a personal journey of trying to figure out what the heck happened to the Republican Party Um and uh, and D.C. to some extent. And so just to kick off, I, we're not going to really do a book review here, but just to kick off, like, what were your conclusions? Was that was the Republican Party always destined to end up in in Trump land or was that was there a fork in the road? Was there a point at which you think like it could have been averted or was this just like was this a freight train coming at some point? Yeah. Um, there's a lot there. Um, so I'll get to it. I, I will say that um, you're kind of in the book. I don't know if by name, but that advocate article you mentioned is in there. Um, and uh, I, I would love to, if you have the full transcript, I'd love to cringe my way through it at some point. I don't know how good your note, your note keeping habits are, but um, 
I boy, I, I reread my answers, um, which it's people can still Google it as like out of the Republican closet or something. I reread my answers, you know, 10 years on when I was writing the book. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy is really deluding himself. And and that was sort of the purpose of the book was, um, you know, I, I wanted to, I, you know, it's I didn't think it was that interesting to understand why MAGA people were MAGA. And I, did, I, I thought I wanted to try to understand why people who knew better went MAGA. And, and I felt like to do that, like I had to look at like, why did I go along with it as long as I did? Right. And, and, and hoping that that would shed some insight on why other people did. And, um, and so like the answer to your question is kind of twofold. One, I think we're on a quasi inevitable path towards MAGA. I think a lot of evidence of that is just globally, you know, we're very myopic in America, but like pretty much every right wing party throughout the world is moving towards their version of MAGA and 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 many had before Trump and after. And I, I think that there's a lot of things happening in the world that, that is leading, you know, more conservative people and, and people that are outside of the globalist you know, that are benefiting less from, less from globalism to, to kind of turn towards a cultural conservatism towards the Republican Party. I don't think that every step along the way was inevitable, though, if that makes sense. And that's what I really want to get in in the book is that decisions matter, elite decisions matter, like history is contingent. There were ways that Trump could have been slowed. There were ways he could have been contained more. We wouldn't have to be where we are right now, as a matter of fact. Had 10 more Republicans voted to convict him in the Senate, right. he would been barred from running for president. And so I wanted to explore like why did those people because there are definitely 10 more Republicans who hate Trump that didn't vote to convict him, right? Like that privately in their heart of hearts know he's bad. And so I wanted to interview the people who privately knew he was bad, reflect back on what I went along with certain things that I knew were bad at a certain at some level and, and try to understand, you know, the rationales there. Was it a harrowing journey for you? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I'll be perfectly honest here. I have not read the whole book. Um, I've skimmed certain sections of it and also heard an interview that you did on Vox about the entire thing, yeah. right? Um, and it sounds like an indictment, not just of the Republican Party to some extent, but of, of Washington too. When I wrote my book about covering the Obama White House and, and you know, pro-LGBT, like like fighting the basically the Obama White House, which which was you know, had made promises to the community. Um, in the first version of it, it was semi-memoir. And mm -hmm. my, my you know, editor wrote back to me, it was like, you're not ready to write a memoir. Like a memoir has to be searching, right? Yeah. And like, you're, you're not, you're not adding, but I mean, you know, in so many words, he was like, you're not adding much here. Cause you like, you know, you're not telling people what you really think. I I am in the book in in that I see things happen. I witness things happen, but sure. I wasn't doing like a searching, like, how do I feel about this type thing? So it's a hard, I'm just saying, it's a hard thing to do. I realized that my editor was right. I wasn't ready to like do a reveal all about what I was thinking during that time. So it's a hard thing to do. Um, and And kudos to you for doing it. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, it was also during COVID. So I was like just sitting in bed writing and just, you know, it was a dark, uh, there were some dark moments, but I, I felt like I had to do it. The, my, my book editor is actually an inverse to situation to yours, which is I, the editor kind of wanted me to do like a just dunking on all my old colleagues and just be like the biggest douchebags of the Republican Party and I expose all. And I just felt like I couldn't do that book without being really honest about my own 
complicity, right? right? Like I, you know, I felt it just felt empty without it, right? And so I felt like I had to do the memoir part, even though I didn't really want, you know, I would have it would have been fun to do the dunking book, but um, I felt like I had to do the memoir part to give it the integrity, you know, to give myself the credibility, especially people like your listeners, right? You know, to be like, I don't want to listen to who gives shit what this guy thinks, right? Um, so I was happy to to do that, even though it was painful, and and yeah, there was an D- indictment of DC that's mostly Republican, but a little bit bipartisan. And um, in, in, in two areas, I think that it really overlaps with both sides. One is just kind of this treating politics like a game. One of the initial book idea titles was like the game, because that was a big reason why we got there. And there were other reasons why we got to Trump. But, but is, is, it shouldn't be a surprise that like a game show host was better at playing this big horse race politics game than nerdy National Review types, right? Yeah. Like maybe we should have seen that coming. You know, that, right. that a populist demagogue could be able to take over this game that we had like been playing um, that was very, you know, where we weren't taking the policy elements of this very seriously. And we were much more enamored with the personality and the, and the game show element to it. And there's a little bit of that, of that on both sides, of course. And, um, you know, the other element that I think worries me just about our whole po- about D.C. and our whole politics is just this kind of sense of, oh, you put on your team jersey. And, and everything that matters in life is all about whether it helps your team, you know, and, and everything that happens in the news is about whether it helps your team. And you got to kind of ha- uh, fashion your opinion to make sure it helps your team. And, you know, I just like you think about how gross this is, right, that you're, you know, when there's mass shootings, you want to be like, man, I really hope it was the other team that was the shooter. You know what I mean? Like you yeah, see yeah. this online, right? Like all this gross stuff. And that all stemmed from D.C. Like we made it like that. Like it wasn't always politics wasn't always like that. There are always politics was never you know you know a tea, tea time but but like that over the past 20 years we really upped the ante on just this kind of wwe style yep. you know like elements of politics and trump really took advantage of that and and i think that while there are a lot of unique right-wing things that led to trump i think that that element is, is kind of an indictment of all of washington i tell you i ran a follow of that a lot because you know a lot of people viewed me not as a as a journalist who was covering LGBTQ issues, they saw me as a, you know, I should have been a democratic team player. So I did a lot of, you know, reporting on how the, the Obama administration initially wasn't living up to expectations and was really slow walking a lot of the stuff they did. Anyway, there were a lot of Democrats in Washington that didn't really love me for that and thought I was a traitor. Um, So I'm sure you can imagine. It's probably needed, especially looking back now. Hell, you know, this is one thing that I, and even, you know, now with my Democratic sympathies, I do tend to side with center left Democrats for obvious reasons more times than not. But here's one area where the left was really right in retrospect is like Obama really should have stepped on the gas those first two years. You oh, know, absolutely. Like when I he had the, yeah, because the Democrats might never have that many senators again. I mean, not never, but, you know, I mean, so not in the foreseeable future. And, and, and there was a lot that was left on the table. And the idea that he was going to do better in 2010, you know, if, if he, you know, was doing, did less, um, uh, has borne out to be totally wrong, obviously. I mean, you are preaching, preaching to the choir on that. And that's yeah. why, you know, LGBTQ activists, people who listen to, to this pod know, um, I talk about this sometimes, they were out early and often with criticism. And that made LGBTQ activists sort of different among the progressive coalition to be out there so early. Um, and, and, and then we ended up getting more. I mean, I'm not, I don't include myself in the activists. I don't deserve right. that type of credit. But, um, but the community ended up getting more because the activists were early 
pushing. They weren't going to settle after Prop 8 passed. They just were they were just bruised and beaten and weren't going to settle for nothing. So, yeah. hey, listen, let's move on um, to the the Republican Party, because that is just a fun topic. And um, I, I I'm ready. Look- I kind of I kind of look at this in in uh, I've kind of got like three buckets that I think of this. Um, you know, I kind of think of of the Republican presidential field, right, which Trump is currently dominating. Then I then I think about the um, Senate Republicans, sort of establishment Republican type people. Um, I kind of don't think they're establishment in a way. Um, they're the old sort of old thinking of establishment, the the old framing of it. But yeah. really, Trump took over all the state parties. And so he he's much more the establishment uh, these days in my book. And then there's the House Republicans who are sort of like reflective and um, in concert with the MAGA grassroots. I guess I just want to look at how these factions are sort of functioning a little differently. And, and just first of all, I don't want to get into the, like the, the minutia and the, um, of, the, of the Republican field, but if you think, if there's people who you think matter, who do you think matters? Obviously, Trump matters. Who do you think matters besides that? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll take the 2024 thing first because that's a short answer, and then I'll kind of do a bigger uh, on the state of the party. And, and then you can take take me where you want to go from there. Um, okay. I, really, in 2024, I think Trump and, and DeSantis are the two that really, really matter. And if not them, then the only possibilities that I can see are people that come from a really MAGA world. And and Sarah Longwell, he said you had on the podcast, I think wrote for the book this really great article that basically like Trump in 2015 is like, gee, it's like Jesus year zero. And like everything before Trump is BT, you know, BC, and, and like the voters don't want anything BT. So they might like Tim Scott fine. They might like Nikki Haley. They don't really like Nikki Haley, but they might like some of these people fine, but they're not going to support somebody for president that wants to take the party back to that old, you know, what they see as a compassionate conservatism and establishment and a not a not populist, you know, kind of place. So, you know, that leaves basically, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy, um, who is this kind of weird Andrew Yang type, but a, but a nationalist yeah. Republican, you know, this sort of total no, uh, guy from nowhere. Um, and, I, you know, I think that Chris Christie maybe matters just because uh, as a kamikaze, not as a potential yeah. nominee, but like in New Hampshire, you know, I worked for Huntsman and Jeb in 12 and 16, and we got, I believe, I'm going from memory, 16 and then 15%. And, and, and um, or excuse me, Kasich got 15, Jeb got less. So that is basically the high teens is kind of what you can get for that type of candidate in New Hampshire, which is really not enough to win, but that's meaningful. And then maybe Tim Scott matters a little bit in South Carolina and just kind of as a fallback, like if shit really hits the fan, Tim Scott maybe is somebody they could fall back on. I find that very, very unlikely. So those five are kind of it for me and everybody else, you know, is, is out for a book deal or is delusional. Um, (laughs) As far as the party is concerned, um, this, that answer kind of goes back to that question, which is look, the party is moving inexorably in this MAGA direction. And it may move into like a fusionist, right? If you think of the old Republican, if you think as Bush as like a thesis and Trump as the antithesis, though, I, I know we're, this, we're stretching this metaphor a little bit because there's some similarities, like some fusion between those two might end up, you know, happening. And, I, and that's what I think is the real establishment, which is like the old Republican guard that got him on board with MAGA. You know, um, I, that is kind of the new establishment, right? Like Mitch McConnell, like all of these guys are yesterday's men and they're only there 
until voters can get rid of them, basically. I mean, if you just look at who the new people coming up in the party are, they are all more of this, you know, J.D. Vance, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like, they're all in this MAGA bent, which, you know, to me is, yeah. Do they realize that? I mean, you're basically saying that Senate Republicans have almost, I mean, the Senate Republican Mm -hmm. establishment folks, the Mitch McConnell wing, that they have almost no constituency. I mean, do they do they understand that? Um, Other than high dollar donors, they do have yeah. a constituency of high dollar donors, but I don't think like in the electorate, they don't seem to have much of a constituency. No, they don't. Um, do they realize that? Well, I, I think that there are two things. Part of this is what I get into in the book, which is I think that they're a little bit deluding themselves that like, you know, in a weird one of the worst compliment I got for, about the book was Bannon uh, texted me. And he's like, he's like, you really nailed it. I'm like, what the fuck? What are you talking about? And the next time I saw him, I because I was doing the show circus for Showtime, and so I, I saw him. That's so I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, you get that I'm using Mitch. Mitch thinks he's using me, right? And, and it's like an insightful point, right? Which is that like Mitch thinks he Mitch knows he doesn't have a full constituency of the party, but he thinks he knows how to operate the inside game, and he can kind of use the MAGA folks for his end, and he has for a long time. You know, a, a pretty effectively, uh, like regardless of what you how, what you think about that, like he's been good at that. But like he's losing his ability to do that, you know, over time gradually, right? Because more and more, you know, the MAGA wing is just ensconcing themselves as the power center within the party, and and the new guys that are coming in, and just look at the new senators, uh, you know, Fans, uh, Holly, right? Like I, you know, it, it would be even more MAGA had their terrible candidates won, right? Like all these uh, uh, Masters loses, Herschel loses, right? But but they're all in this nationalist like cultural right nationalist right they are no longer interested in the neocon foreign policy element of stuff they they care kind of about the economic stuff like generally they're for tax cuts but that it's more about just this culture or nationalist oriented thing that makes it look more like a foreign right-wing party like like marine le pen's party you know like that's where things are going and um and, and i think you see marine, that at the house Marie Le Pen's party, the white nationalist wing, right? Yeah, right. And so there's this, there's this, like our fusion used to be like cultural, like pro-life people, evangelicals with kind of libertarian economics and like pro-military foreign policy. Like that coalition is breaking down and like the cultural right side of this, you know, um, the nationalist, the anti-elite, the anti-globalist, you know, um, element, like that is where all the energy is. When I go to Republican events and interview people, like when you ask them what they care about, like it is, it is woke, anti-woke, anti-trans, um, COVID lockdown, which some of that is like old school libertarian stuff, but some of it is just like anti-science, anti-Fauci, anti-climate, like that, that anti, 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 like that's what they care about. Like, no, you don't go to anybody and you're like, I care about tax cuts and less regulation and a strong military. Like nobody's, if you go to like a Cary Lake event or a CPAC and you talk to people that like, none of them care about that stuff anymore. Like, like just the emphasis has changed. And so the the politicians that reflect those old interests, like they're on their way out. And and you know, in the Senate, you have six years of turnover, right? And sometimes you can you win a primary, right? Like, so like, it takes a while. This stuff is gradual; it doesn't happen overnight. Um, but but it's clear what direction things are going. Well, in the, in that sense, then the House Republicans already reflect where the House Dem- I mean, where the uh, Senate Republicans are going. In other words, sure. it may take a while in the Senate Republicans to get rid of a senator who's got six yeah. years. Um, but it happens very quickly in the House because you can right. just you can primary someone two years later. You're you know, there you are. Um, and so yeah. that's 
that that if if what you're saying is true, and um, I don't totally disagree with it at all, then then the House Republicans right now reflect sort of what Senate Republicans could look like in you know six to ten years down the road. Yeah, so, and Kevin is even the House hasn't even fully turned over, right? Because Kevin won his speakership now barely, right? Like there are the fifteen ballots. You can see how tenuous it is. Kevin is this perfect example of the new MAGA establishment, an old establishment guy that went along with Trump and is willing to do the MAGA stuff. So when Kevin eventually leaves, he's not going to get replaced with like an, a, somebody from the old Republican, you know, type of party. He's not going to get replaced with like a blue blazer, Patrick McHenry type. Listeners, I don't know who this is. I'm trying to think about like somebody, a Paul Ryan is not coming back, right? Right, right. Like he will be replaced with a Jim Jordan type or with, you know, someone else in that, you know, kind of ilk. So, so Kevin McCarthy is as good as we're going to get maybe ever again I don't know about maybe ever again, but yeah, for a while. I I don't know. I mean, I'm hopeful. I don't think that's ever going to come back to me. Now, there's some listeners probably that look. there's an argument that the party could move towards like a like a legit working class conservative party. Right. Would get rid of the donor class concerns and would still be pretty noxious on cultural issues, you know, but like would not be for. Um, you know, regime change, foreign adventure making abroad and, and would be more into, you know, kind of minimum wage increases and other, you know, family, you know, tax cuts, right? like things that are that are less uh, benefit to corporations. And so like you could think about a legit version of that party that doesn't really appeal to me, you know, as a social liberal, you know, as somebody who is more of a, like a moderate center right, you know, socially liberal Republican. But you could see how it could uh, be like a legit opposition party you know, that, um, you know, is just reoriented from what it used to be to more cultural concerns and is not, you know, doesn't care as much about the donor class. The problem is the donor class still wields a lot of power, you know, and, yeah. and, and the problem is we haven't seen that. Like J.D. Vance was supposed to be like the encapsulation of that. Like what would a legit populist center right Republican look like? But you see what he does. I, I mean, in order to, to to maintain that brand, he has to still do the conspiracy stuff on COVID. He still has to pretend Trump won in 2020, right? And so it's like, uh, you know, um, we uh, on the right, we used to have this joke, real national, or real, real Marxism has never been tried, you know, to mock the Marxist lefties. Like they say that is real, you know, maybe right. real populist conservatism has never been tried. Maybe, maybe it's out there, it's possible. But I, I you know, I just think that's the direction that things are going. And, and it's likely to stay down the ugly path. But, but I do think that there's maybe a way to, you know, that, that, that it goes a different way. So I, I was going to ask you, and I mean, we kind of just got into that, but you think there's a possibility that like, you, that, that the Republican party doesn't have to be scrapped entirely. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if scrapped entirely is possible, right? I, you know, the, you know, just the nature of this is there's a pretty big core of, of the country that wants this. You know, I, I uh, if you just look at the data, like socially, culturally conservative voters like make up nearly half the country. Right, like a few, some of them, a small number, still vote Democrat because they're you know fiscally liberal or they're you know, older black voters, for example. You know, are, you know, uh, so a, a big part of the country wants. Cult- so how do you blow that up, right? Hey, can um, I just you, ask what? Let's just define cultural conservatism because in original cultural conservatism, you'd you'd include. Um, pro-life, right? Yeah. Oh, I, I think we're pretty much finding that like being on the side of, you know, abortions being legal, at least for a certain amount of time. I mean, that's, that's almost a 70, 80 issue for, 
for Democrats right now. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I I question what the definition of cultural conservatism is. That's a fair point. I would define it as unhappy with the way that the culture is changing um, okay. in ways where you look at gender norms, sex norms, role of women, even still for some people, now not for the older black voters I mentioned, but, but role of rate, you know, the right. racial, you know, changing demography. I don't like the fact that white cowboys aren't the heroes in movies anymore. Like, you know, like stupid stuff like that, really. I mean, like, look at what DeSantis is focused on. Uh, he is the abortion true, which isn't that popular, but, um, but, you know, gun rights. And, and so those would be the two traditional planks, but also just this school shouldn't be teaching about, you know, gender like that, like all of that in a bucket. Um, not everybody agrees with all those planks, but but the general sense that like cult, the culture is, mo- you know, is moving to a place away from what, the, what where, you know, what I am comfortable with. Um, so I, I, okay. I, I just don't know so how you just, break so that it's, up. It's, now, the younger, like it's, it's like reactionary culturalism. Reactionary, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And the younger. So, so getting back to your original question, what do you do? Okay. So I went to a Turning Point USA conference to talk to the young voters. Now, these are the activists. You're not your average Republican. But the younger Republican voters are all about this culture war stuff, all about anti-woke, all about gender identity, um, you know, cancel culture, what you know, so to speak, right? Like that stupid stuff, right? Like that's what they care about. You know, it's not Michael J. Ke- Michael Keaton, you know, for it's not about Michael J. Fox from the yeah, yeah, Family yeah. Ties kids going to these things anymore, right? Like it's a different animal. And so, like, how do you change this? Well, the Republican Party and these issues are very, very unpopular among young voters. But among the voters that are voting Republican, they really like that, right? Like, and so, I, how do you reconstitute the party? I just, I, I don't think, or anyway, I, I think that there are ways to change it gradually. And I think that the part, I think the the best case scenario is to try to reconstitute the party and make it look more like the Tories in England. You know, right, like Boris, right, like that, right. like maybe that's like kind of normal, right? It's like, okay, we're not going to fight against Medicaid expansion anymore, you know, but we still, you know, want strong borders and we still want this. It's still going to have these reactionaries in it. And I just, I don't know how you, it's, it's, that's the part when you asked me your original question, was this inevitable? Well, we can change the elites you know, to try to to guard against these worst decisions. It was not inevitable that the whole party pretends like the 2020 election was stolen. Like that was not inevitable. Like that conspiracy was preventable. But the fact that the voters want more anti-globalist, cult, you know, old, you know, traditional values type, a type party, I, I just don't think that's changeable. I, I you know, I, that is no matter what you did at the elites to try to nudge the party the right direction you know, they're, they're sort of captive to their own voters, you know, at some level, maybe, maybe attitudes change over time. We have, we have lived through periods where attitudes have changed on gay stuff. So maybe that'll happen on this. Right. Right. Uh, Or, or maybe not. I mean, does that leave people like you permanently sort of independent or without a home? I mean, I know like just after I think the 2020 election, we had um, Sarah Longwell on and said, what's going on with the Republican party? She was like, none of it's good. And she said, you know, we were going to like I was in the boat of we're going to defeat Trump um, in 2016. Then some of us are going to come in. We're going to sort of reconstitute the party. We're going to revive it, you know, and none of that happened, obviously, after 2016 because he won. But they also didn't take, you know, Republicans, Republicans, especially at the state level, didn't take enough of a drubbing 
um, in 2020 in order to make it possible to say, look, he's decimated our party. Now we, we, you know, we need to come in and fix it. Like, are you just probably for the rest of your life at this point, maybe an independent? I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to pigeonhole you. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 please. I get it. Um, I I think that the broad answer to the question is that we're permanently homeless, like um, at the elite level. So here's the, I wrote this article called The Trade about how uh, the party's traded voters and, and a lot of elite political types just don't realize it yet. At the voter level, a lot of people like me, like I look at my friend group, people that like were socially liberal, fiscally conservative, you know, that cliche. Right. Yep. And like were supportive of the war on terror stuff. Right. Like, you know, that are elder, older millennials have kids now like they all voted for W. Like most of them just vote for Democrats now. Right. I, I don't you know, they didn't think about that. Right. Like, and you can see this in the numbers. Right. It's just why, why is suburban Atlanta now blue? Well, some of it is Stacey Abrams's work, for sure. Some of it's turnout. But a lot of it's not. Right? Like Georgia doesn't just change that much in, in, in eight years just based on turnout. A lot of it is people who are suburban, former Republicans who have just changed parties, basically. I mean, I don't you know, you'd have to interview them. Do they consider themselves Democrat? I don't know. But they're voting for Democrats for the most part. So I think at the voter level, a lot of these people just change. I think if you and and I and that's basically where I where I find myself from a practical matter, uh, from an ideological level, the way I put it, and sorry for the political science seminar here, but just very briefly, is I see those that type of voter, a socially moderate, you know, fiscally conservative, kind of classically traditional Republican in the old school, you know, kind of sense, is is homeless in the same way that pro voters used to be homeless. Right. Like uh, pro voters were homeless for, a, a, this, you know, half century. Right. And, you know, they'd pro, they'd Buchanan for a while. Then they got Trump. Sometimes they voted for Reagan. Sometimes they voted for Clinton. Some of them were swing voters. Some of them were just culturally conservative Democrats. Right. You know, it just sort of depended. And um, and I think that is this this group of our people. Like some of us will be swing voters. Some of us will be the moderate Republicans hanging on to hope <laughs> and trying to change yeah. the party. Some of us will be for practical purposes on the on the more whatever moderate Democrat uh, wing. And I think that is just kind of how the things are going to be for for the next, you know, probably generation. Do you, this is an unfair question, but you have any idea, like, sort of what percentage of the electorate that is? Well, kind of. Uh, the best way to figure this out is to look at who were the Romney Biden voters. Okay. Right? And, 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 you know, I, I think that's like the, okay. So then you can add on that just like the Romney Biden voters, somebody's, this is knowable. Maybe I can email too. We can put it in the show notes. I, I'm going from memory. I think it's like 8%. Yeah, that would be um, that would be my guess is that yeah. somewhere around ten percent. That was yeah, just yeah. like an off. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I think that's right. Okay. So, so if the Romney Biden vote is about eight percent, and then you add a percent for people that were Romney and couldn't come around for Biden, but just couldn't vote for Trump and just wrote in Edmund Burke or their grandma or whatever, right. or the Pope. My mom wrote in the Pope um, <laughs> the first time. She did Biden the second time, right? Uh, you know, those people. You add in those people. That's one percent. You add in the people that held their nose for Trump. You know, right? I, I think that's what you're talking about. About 10% of the electorate. Um, but then it's important to remember that about an even amount, maybe not quite even, maybe a little less than that went the other way. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and these are your working class white right. voters, the pro, you know, those types I was talking about. So, so there was, it, was just, it was essentially an even trade. Uh, right. I think that the Democrats got a few more people in total numbers, but the Republicans people um, carry more weight in the electrical, uh, in the electrical, Lord, in the uh, electoral college and in yeah. the Senate, because a lot of them are, 
are you know working class white folks that live in Wisconsin in these swing states, right? Sure. Um, a lot of our people that you got that the Democrats got live in New sure. York and California. <laughs> and right. their, their votes don't matter as much, unfortunately, Although, the system. Um, yeah. But uh, anyway, so Although yeah, I would so argue that, 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 that suburban voters were were a real help to Democrats because they're Huge. a high turnout group. Yes. Um, so yes. this is very in the midterms. Yeah. In the yep. midterms, this is really key. So if like you trade non-college white voters who like kind of only got excited for Trump for college educated suburban voters who like are really, you know, um, on posting Instagram memes about right. about George Floyd. Like that's a bad trade in the in the low intensity elections. Right. Like right. the people, the Democrats got show up for for, you know, all these off year elections. People, the Republicans got are, are some of the more unreliable voters. So this is um, one thing that I always tease my new Democratic pals over is that Democrats earnestly, which I love, are always like, we want more turnout, more turnout. And I'm like, eh, uh, the biggest group of people that don't vote are non-college white voters. <laughs> so do you really want everybody to turn out? Maybe. OK, I get it. It's a good principle to have. But um, that's that is that was an interesting element of uh, of, of the voter trade for sure. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, that, that can be debate. I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, for years, Democrats used to pull their hair out saying, how do we get turnout? How do we get our people to turn out right at in uh, in off year elections? And, you know, mm -hmm. and how you get that to happen is you become the choice of suburban swing voters. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's that's one way to do it. Um, yeah. So moms uh, vote. That's pretty yeah. good. Uh, that's very good. Like the more moms that are voting for you, the better because they, better. you know, they have a whole schedule. Right. So okay. So let's let's end on something um, just about the upcoming election. And when you think about the group of gettable swing voters, okay, let's assume. Mm -hmm that Biden's the nominee because mm -hmm. he is obviously running. And I short, I think short of something like totally unforeseen, he's going to be uh, the Democratic nominee. Mm -hmm. um, what do Democrats, in your view, need to concentrate on in order to make themselves once again? I mean, we've got if, if Trump's the nominee or I would ar argue that DeSantis really isn't that much different. I mean, I feel I've seen polls where it's like I wouldn't vote for Trump and I wouldn't vote for DeSantis either. They're, they're yeah. the same MAGA brand now yeah, that, it, sure. you know, that sort of rancid to a lot of people. But like what can Democrats do to potentially excite, um, you know, this the group of swing voters or at least keep them in the fold that we're talking about here? Yeah. Okay. So um, rapid fire are groups that they should care about basically um, working class voters of color, which is not the people we've been talking about, but that's just really important. Like there's mm -hmm. a little bit of uh, Democrats have lost a little bit of ground with them, um, particularly in, in certain communities, Florida, the Cuban community, the number one example um, and the border States. So, so making sure you're messaging to them about uh, particularly on economic stuff. Sometimes Democrats like focus on just identity stuff with them, which is important. But like economics of Biden has been so good. The Repu Republicans don't care about these people. Like They might pretend that they're populist now. But what has the Republican House done to try to make the lives better of a working class person, you know, along the Rio Grande? Right. Um, so right. I, that is I, just making sure that 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 group is there's not more attrition among those voters, I think is really important. Um, uh, and and we have material. We have material to work with there too, because 
you know, the, uh, the unemployment rates among, right. uh, you know, people of color, Hispanics and black people, that 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 is down uh, to its lowest level in, uh, I think, forever, actually. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, a, it's historic low. But anyway. I think that's right. And and then um, and then we're really talking about um, suburban men. I mean, uh, it's kind of like the women have already changed. Right. Like so a lot of times you're talking about the women's husbands right, <laughs> in right. a lot of these cases. Right. Suburban men, college educated men you're, um, that, you know, live in these swing states. I just and I think the big thing is like Biden is very it does has done pretty well with those groups communicating, you know, with them about. Um, you know, about the accomplishments that are relevant, right? Like, and I think that there's a lot, but the chip stuff, the, the um, you know, I think they are, they're aligned with Biden on Ukraine, um, for example. Um, they're aligned with Biden on uh, infrastructure. You know, I, I think that Biden doing a little bit, not too much, you don't want to, you know, make the Daily Coast listeners mad, but like a little bit of just demonstrating that like, you know, he, he has advanced a lot of progressive policies, but he hasn't gone along with the craziest stuff, right? Like reassuring them, you know, that that's going to happen. I, I, I just think that those two, the working class voters of color, and then your, your suburban college men are, are, are the two key groups. And, and, I, and I think that luckily Biden's had a lot of stuff that he can talk about to with both groups. It's just the Democrats haven't done so great at talking about it. And so I think that maybe contrasting that, especially with the Republicans craziness, you know, it's like, look, we're out there doing infrastructure. We're out there doing chips. We're trying to do stuff that helps you. Meanwhile, what do the Republicans care about? Hunter Biden's dick pics, you know, like they're not yeah. doing anything, you know, like yeah. they don't care. I, I think that is going to be a key contrast um, in, right. for 2020. I, I think one of the biggest challenges there, and I don't think we have time to solve this problem right now, but I think, <laughs> you know, you know, as, as a communications guy, I mean, a tip for, for our audience members, Tim was a, um, a com, uh, the, the, were you director of communications for, for Jeb Bush? For Jeb, or, yeah. 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 Um, and, and you have a history of that. It's not just yeah. like suddenly you're director of communications. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is, this is your area of expertise is what I'm saying. And I think just getting in some ways, getting, uh, you know, attention when, when the Republican party is in full meltdown mode, mold, uh, mode, and you've got, you know, uh, Trump who is, a historic disaster in terms yeah. of being criminally indicted and twice impeached and, you know, all this stuff. It's really hard to, it's like they sort of blot out the sun, right? right? It's really hard yeah. to get that attention. And what I've been thinking is, uh, and we have to get off soon, but what I've been thinking is, is, um, is maybe the best place for, uh, for Democrats to sort of make those inroads is really out on the trail in local headlines, because I just don't think you can compete with national headlines right now. Yeah, so. I, I agree with that. My two cents really quick is just, yes, local is good. But I also think that that is why you, you, they need to try to piggyback like the positive stuff onto the negative, right? Ride the wave of all the crazy Republican stuff. Look at the, like, look at what the Republican craziness is. Look what we're trying to do, right? And, and I think that trying to make that contrast message, tying them together is, is going to be one that lands with like, all really all of the key groups, you know, um, uh, in the in the swing electorate. All right. Well, that is our time with Tim Miller. This has been extremely enlightening. Uh, his book is called Why We Did It. If you want to check that out, 
Um, there's not that many people who write searching memoirs about all the things they did wrong um, <laughs> as a as a consultant of any party um, or you know whatever. So I, it is unusual and and un, and it is an unusually good book at the same time. Um, and then also uh, you can catch him on the Next Level podcast. Um, at the bulwark and and he uh, he writes for lots of he's got lots of bylines going too so <laughs> but hang um, at the bulwark we love have we love having a special from the left come over challenge us push back it's good we've got a nice community and um you know we're not the never trumpers don't bite um we can have on. we can have I'll, a back I'll, and forth I'll push back i'll for do sure. a, i'll do a progressive pushback on the, on the bulwark <laughs> on the list on the list Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you to all our listeners for hanging in there, um, being in the fight, being engaged. It's so important uh, that all of you keep coming back and do what you can do, whether it's donating or, uh, you know, making phone calls, getting involved in a local campaign. Uh, We just love having you in the fight. And uh, thank you for listening to us and we will catch you next week.